Our opening words this morning are from a speech delivered at Harvard University by Audre Lorde in 1982. And um, it's a little longer than our opening words sometimes are, but I think it's worth it. So I invite you to just settle in for her words. There is no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. Malcolm knew this. Martin Luther King Jr. knew this. Our struggles are particular, but we are not alone. Within each one of us, there is some piece of humanness that knows we are not being served by the machine which orchestrates crisis after crisis and is grinding all our futures into dust. If we are to keep the enormity of the forces aligned against us from establishing a false hierarchy of oppression, we must school ourselves to recognize that any attack against blacks, any attack against women, is an attack against all of us who recognize that our interests are not being served by the systems we support. Each one of us here is a link in the connection between anti-poor legislation, gay shootings, the burnings of synagogues, street harassment, attacks against women, and resurgent violence against black people. I ask myself, as well as each one of you, exactly what alteration in the particular fabric of my everyday life does this connection call for? Can any one of us here still afford be private or individual? Can anyone here still afford to believe that the pursuit of liberation can be the sole and particular province of any one particular race or sex or age or religion or sexuality or class? We share a common interest, survival, and it cannot be pursued in isolation from others simply because their differences make us uncomfortable. We know what it is to be lied to. The 60s should teach us how important it is not to lie to ourselves, not to believe that revolution is a one-time event or something that happened around us rather than inside of us, not to believe that freedom can belong to any one group of us without the others also being free. With those words from 1982 hearkening back to the 1960s speaking to us today in 2020, I invite you to join our chorus as we sing our opening song this morning. We shall not give up the fight, we have only started, we have only started, we have only started. We shall not give up the fight, we have only started, we have only started, we have only started. Together we'll have victory, hand holding hand, hand holding hand, hand holding hand. Together we'll have victory, hand holding hand, hand holding hand, hand holding hand. Never ever put to fight, we're about to win, we're about to win, we are about to win. Never ever put to fight, we're about to win, we're about to win, we are about to win. 
We shall not give up the fight. We have only Soria. We have only Soria. We have only Soria. We shall not give up the fight. We have only Soria. We have only Soria. We have only Soria. We shall not give up the fight. We have only Soria. We have only Soria. We have only Soria. We shall not give up the fight. We have only Soria. We have only Soria. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Brian Fashigian. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning, whether you're in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we may welcome you and answer any questions that you may have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us. And we'd like to hear from you what you're looking for. We hope you'll join us after the platform service for coffee in the lobby or water and in the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email address with us in the gold sheet found at the welcome table. You can drop that sheet in the collection basket as it passes later in the service. I want to invite you to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present here with us this morning. And I now invite Perry Binder to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. Perry led the chorus this week, and we appreciate that work. It's great bringing your own cheering section. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you. As Perry lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a better future for all. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, as we honor the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and think about how far we have to go, I'm particularly mindful of those in Virginia who are worried about the threat of armed militias and white supremacists. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us.
Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. invite you now into a time of meditation. Our meditation this morning is adapted from the Reverend Howard Thurman, a Presbyterian minister who was a mentor to Dr. King. We will follow Reverend Thurman's words with silence and the music from the chorus, a piece that was created in dedication to Mother Emanuel Amy Church after the massacre there in 2015. Life goes on. During these turbulent times, we must remind ourselves repeatedly that life goes on. This we are apt to forget. The wisdom of life transcends our wisdoms. The purpose of life outlasts our purposes. The process of life cushions our processes. The mass attack of, di of disillusion and despair distill out of the collapse of hope has so invaded our thoughts that what we know to be true and valid sometimes seems unreal and ephemeral. There seems to be little energy left for aught but futility. This is the great deception. By it whole, peoples have gone down to oblivion without the will to affirm the great and permanent strength of the clean and the commonplace. Let us not be deceived. It is just as important as ever to attend to the little graces by which the dignity of our lives is maintained and sustained. Birds still sing. The stars combine to cast their gentle gleam over the desolate of the battlefields. And the heart is still inspired by the kind words and the gracious deed. There is no need to fear evil. There is every need to understand what it does. How it operates in the world, what it draws upon to sustain itself. We must not shrink from the knowledge of the evilness of evil. Over and over we must know that the real target of evil is not destruction of the body, the reduction to rubble of cities, the real target of evil is to corrupt the spirit of man and to give his soul to the contagion of inner disintegration. When this happens, there is nothing left. The very citadel of man is captured and laid waste. Therefore, the evil in this world around us must not be allowed to move from without to within. This would be to be overcome by evil to drink in the beauty that is within reach, to clothe one's life with simple deeds of kindness, to keep alive a sensitivity to the movement of the spirit in the quietness of the human heart and in the work in workings of the human mind. 
This is, as always, the ultimate answer to the great deception.
Thank you so much, Chorus, for that beautiful piece and for singing for us today. I took a lift here um, this morning, and the lift driver um, asked if I was going to church um, since it was Sunday, and I said, well, yes, I'd better. Um, <laughs> be awkward if I don't show up. And... Um, and, and said that I was the, the clergy person. And so he asked what I was speaking about. And I said, well, of course, we're talking about Dr. King. Every year on this weekend, we talk about Dr. King. We've talked about his economic policies. And we've talked about his anti-war work. And I know years ago, there was a tradition of reading some of the letters between um, Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King here at the Ethical Society. So we've talked as well we, the broader community, about his personal life, the, the deepest parts of who he was. I both love Martin Luther King Day, Martin Luther King Weekend. I will be there tomorrow downtown um, in Southeast, marching in the D.C. Martin Luther King Parade, and I hope that many of you will join me, wear long johns, um, uh, and be part of this really um, important DC tradition, that particular parade, uh, marching down Martin Luther King Avenue. So I love this weekend, and I also have some mixed feelings about it. Part of those mixed feelings come up in the sort of sanitization of Dr. King that we see so frequently in the media. You know, sort of, oh, that Dr. King was sort of mostly about a kind of, um, you know, love and not hate um, in an insipid sort of way, right? And so uh, I appreciate all of the times when we are reminded of the radical Dr. King, when we are reminded that he was really um, vilified by the progressive institutions, especially in the last few years of his life as he took on economic inequality and um, anti-war work even more dramatically. Um, that we are reminded of the ways that Dr. King was not um, loved and easy by, um, by the world around him, but indeed a radical figure in his time and still today. And also, also I think there is a challenge in the lifting up even, even someone as amazing as prolific as inspiring a speaker and writer and organizer as Dr. King, lifting up one person in a movement of many. And so I want to think a little bit today about that movement of many, about all of the people who came to create together to create the movement that Dr. King stood in the center of as the focal point, but what it meant to be one of many. I owe a debt for this particular platform to my colleague, Molly Hausch-Gordon, who wrote on a related topic a couple of years ago and shared with me much of her um, research and in particular some of the quotes that she found. Um, so I want to acknowledge and appreciate that debt. And actually to say that that debt or, or that collaboration or um, the sharing of her work and my work is sort of the point of the platform, <laughs> that we, none of us, do this work alone. 
do any work alone. All of our work is done in community and in relationship. It must be. Ella Baker, one of the women involved in the civil rights movement very deeply, said, you didn't see me on television. You didn't see news stories about me. The kind of role that I tried to play, she said, was to pick up pieces or put together pieces out of which I hoped organization might come. I have always thought, she said, that what is needed is the development of people who are interested not in being leaders as much as in developing leadership in others. All throughout the civil rights movement, women were often unseen workers and uh, campaigners and organizers and architects. In fact, many of us know Martin Luther King's, perhaps I'm sure all of us know Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech. One of the speeches that our children in school can usually quote from, at least portions of it. You may also know the role that Mahalia Jackson played in the I Have a Dream speech. So there was Dr. King, as the story is told, up in front of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And he was um, reading the script that he had prepared, that he had worked with a, a colleague on to create what it was he wanted to say in this particular moment to the people of our country. And he was reading through this, um, this prepared manuscript. And Mahalia Jackson, who had just sung for those people, was standing right on the dais next to him on the podium. And the way the story is told, as he's reading along, she said, Martin, Martin, tell them about the dream. And observers of that moment said that they could see Dr. King pause and shift the papers he was reading from to the right, and then tell them about the dream. Those words that we have perhaps committed to memory were not part of the planned speech. They, they were shared because Mahalia Jackson asked him to tell them about the dream, a dream that Dr. King had had and had shared with his colleagues and those working with him. He changed what he planned to say and shared words that resonate decades later, words that have come to be intricately linked with his life and his work, with his dream. As I was researching for this platform, I wanted to think about the ways in which we are shaped by the people around us. You know, as we think about the theme of integrity that we are exploring for January, I think we often think about um, our, our own singular individual integrity, that integrity is about knowing where I stand and what I believe in and sticking with that. But of course, the reality is that I only am in the we. And so I, I asked some of my colleagues if they knew stories of Dr. King having had moments of being shaped, just as in the I Have a Dream speech. And I, I found this particular story of his work with Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin, as you might know, was one of the great figures as well of the civil rights movement. Bayard Rustin was um, a gay black man, and in part because of his identity as a gay man, was not front and center in some of the civil rights work. Um, 
uh, nationally, but he did a huge amount of organizing and work to get us toward the work that, um, that, that was seen more publicly, the marches and the boycotts. And in fact, Bayard Rustin was um, a mentor to Dr. King in the early years. So here's the story that I found about Rustin and King. Um, the Montgomery bus boycott, um, when, when that began, um, Dr. King was a relatively young pastor, uh, new, new to Montgomery, um, and in fact chosen as the face of the Montgomery bus boycott in part because he was new enough that um, he could appeal to multiple different factions in the community. You know, like any community, there were pastors that liked each other and pastors that didn't like each other and churches that split from other churches. And so Dr. King, new in Montgomery, was not in a fight with anyone yet. <laughs> and so he was asked to come forward. Of course, he also was an amazing speaker, an inspiring pastor, an organizer. But he was asked to take on this particular role. He was relatively new, and he was not yet committed to the principles of nonviolence that we so associate with Dr. King's work. So as the boycott was going on, he was beginning to receive um, threats, extremely disturbing threats to his own safety, his family's safety. As you might know, his, um, his uh, house was, um, was bombed. And, and so there were armed watchmen um, around him, and, um, and he himself had a gun in the home to protect himself. Understandable. Bayard Rustin came to visit with a reporter, actually, the story is told, and the reporter went and sat down in Dr. King's um, living room and actually sat uh, almost on a pistol that was left out on the chair. And that night, Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King stayed up through the night talking about the principles of nonviolence, talking about them both from a core um, understanding of self, a commitment, a personal commitment to nonviolence, and also as a strategy, as an organizing tactic, how important nonviolence was going to be in the work that they were doing, how important it was going to be to have an attitude of nonviolence toward that work. So Rustin stayed up late arguing with Dr. King. He said later, I think it's fair to say that Dr. King's view of nonviolent tactics was almost non-existent when the boycott began. In other words, Dr. King was permitting himself and his children and his home to be protected by guns. Rustin and King met and, and spoke together, and then later King was invited by the Gandhi Memorial Foundation to go to India and to study practices and principles of nonviolence in India coming out of the movement there. And and eventually, as we know, Dr. King embodied and practiced nonviolence as a core part of both who he was and how he was in the world. Indeed, it became synonymous with his work, the principles of nonviolence. I was so fascinated by that story to hear a story of engagement and movement and change to hear how living with integrity sometimes means being shaped and altered and changing our minds thanks to the relationships that we are in. And to imagine this great hero, this inspiration to all of us, and to know that he too changed in relationship just as all of us are invited to do.
So I was thinking about this idea of being shaped in our own integrity, in our own selves, and how that relates to humanism, to ethical culture, to progressive religion in general. I think humanists and um, Unitarian Universalists, other liberal religious folks, tend to have a pretty strong um, understanding of uh, individuality, would you say? The importance of being able to think for ourselves. In fact, many of us are here in this room because we didn't want to be in other traditions where we felt as though people were thinking for us. We wanted to be able to articulate our own beliefs, our own values deeply and truly on our own journeys. And I think that is well and good and a challenge. Many years ago, I heard a um, lecture by Fred Muir, a Unitarian Universalist minister, talking about the three heresies of Unitarian Universalism, the three things that he thought Unitarian Universalists did wrong. One of them was um, anti-authority authority figure problems. I remember that one pretty well. And then, um, and then one of them I don't remember. And then the one we're going to talk about today was the heresy of individualism. Now, he said specifically individualism, not individuality, not the idea of every person being able to express themselves or to be able to think for themselves, to be able to search for truth. The heresy of individualism, when we make an idol of individualism, when we imagine that thinking what we think, irrespective of how we are connected to other people, of how we check it in community, when we think that just what we think is the most important thing there. Unitarian Universalism has seven principles, and one of them is often cited as the one that is about being able to think just whatever it is that you think, to believe whatever you are called to believe. The principle is the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And, and I think we sometimes focus on the free part and forget about the responsible part. The responsible part is what happens together. The responsible part is why we're here in this room all together, rather than cozy in our own beds. Where That's great. It's perfect timing, yes. We could be cozy in our own beds, wearing our jammies, watching a TED Talk thinking our own thoughts. Instead, we come into community rubbing up against other thoughts and ideas, values and belief, and we check what we think with the people around us. We journey together up that mountain, holding hands and helping each other to get there. And the work that we do is stronger and more powerful when we do it together. I was thinking about that earlier this morning as I came in. As you might have noticed, the chorus has no one directing them today. Many of you know, if you don't and you're a member, you have not been reading your emails. Um, <laughs> 
that in September we bid a grateful um, and, uh, and tearful goodbye to Bailey Whiteman, our music director, and are in a search now for a new music director. And the chorus, I talked with them about what they might like to do. They worked with a substitute chorus director for a little while in October, November, and December. And, um, and now they're without one for the time being. And I, and I asked what they might want to do, and they said that they would like to, to provide music for this Sunday in particular. And they picked out some songs, and we went back and forth a little, and they chose the pieces that they wanted to present. Now, I will say that with the West Chorus, maybe with all choruses, but I I would venture, perhaps especially with the West Chorus, that even when there is a director working with them, that rehearsal is a a somewhat collaborative process. (laughs) In fact, that's one of the things we need to make sure that our next music director understands in the interview process. It's somewhat collaborative, perhaps more so than you might imagine. But watching them this morning, as they rehearsed together, seeing the way that they corrected each other or suggested to each other, they know that they are stronger when they shape each other, when they allow themselves to be shaped by each other. They know that if they just came in and each sang their part, sure that they were on tune and coming in at just the right time, no matter what anybody else said, it wouldn't sound quite so lovely as we have heard this morning. So just as the chorus knows it in their singing, that's what we too do in community, here in this congregation and then beyond these walls as we work for justice in the world, for a world where love crosses all borders. The poverty lawyer, Dean Spade, speaks to the importance of work together. There's a term, he writes, social entrepreneurship, that I see tossed around a lot these days that what we just need is the right person to graduate from Harvard, maybe Harvard Business School, and have this vision about how to change poverty, how to end poverty, that kind of imagination that there's just the smart, right-thinking, charismatic individual, and that's how change is made, is completely the opposite of everything we know about movements. We know that real expertise and leadership, Spade writes, around transforming poverty is going to come from masses of poor people in coordinated movement together, solving these problems and creating a new world. In the book, No More Heroes, Grassroots Challenges to the Savior Mentality, Jordan Flaherty, Paulina Helm Hernandez, um, in speaking to the author Jordan Flaherty, Paulina Helm Hernandez, who is herself a queer Latina organizer and artist, spoke on the lessons she had found in multiracial movement building and organizing. Helm Hernandez writes, I think white people in movement building need to make a call about whether they will be individual activists or if they are really ready to commit to collective organizing. The latter means that you don't have to always be the final vote on the strategy, pace, timing, tone, and approach. Put another way, it means you have to learn how to share political imagination, power, and work without having to be always in charge. 
how to share political imagination, power, and work. How to allow ourselves to be transformed by others. To have our integrity exist only in relationship with the people around us. Ethical culture actually, I think, speaks to this really beautifully. The idea of living mutually. The phrase we often use is that we seek to elicit the best in others and therefore in ourselves. And the way I think about that is that I cannot be my best self unless you are your best self too. Unless both of us are able to thrive Neither of us are fully who we can be. We need each other to get by. We need each other to survive. And we need each other, paradoxically, to know where each one of us individually stands. I was thinking about the closing song that we chose for this month of integrity, which I, I love. It's fun and it's fun to sing. It's a Tom Petty song, I Won't Back Down. Some of you who have been here the last couple Sundays have been singing it. I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, and I won't back down. I'll stand my ground. And I thought, how different might that song feel if it was we? We won't back down. We'll stand our ground. How much different and how much harder, too, right? No one said community was easy, that being shaped by others was comfortable. And yet, every one of our heroes was shaped by the people around them. Every one of us is shaped by the feedback, by the ideas, by the pitch corrections that we are offered. Three months to the day before he was killed, Dr. King spoke at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He gave a sermon um, that he titled The Drum Major Instinct. And he used a story from the Bible, um, from the New Testament, uh, in which Jesus teaches his disciples that the greatest among them is not the one who is seen doing great things, but rather the one who serves. Dr. King talks about the drum major instinct. He describes it as the desire for greatness, the desire to be recognized. And he talks about how it's a driving force for all of us. That's part of being human. He begins by talking about a a little baby born just as drum major instinct, <laughs> all ego needing to be noticed and held and fed and nurtured. And then he talks about the ways that the drum major instinct can lead us awry when it's not harnessed appropriately, when, when the quest for recognition or for being just ourselves, knowing exactly what we stand for individually, and what we believe individually takes over. And then he invites the congregation to see the drum major instinct differently. To imagine what other kind of drum major 
we might be. He talks about that story and Jesus' lesson that the greatest is the one who serves. Jesus, Dr. King said, gave us a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. And this morning, the thing that I like about it, by giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. Dr. King's sermon goes on to talk about his very personal vision for what kind of servant he wanted to be, what kind of drum major he wanted to be, and how he wanted to be remembered, how he wanted to be honored. Our chorus will sing those words for us, the words of Dr. King's hope for his memory and his legacy. As each of us stand our ground, as we don't back down, as we think about our own integrity and what we believe, may we remember to be shaped by the community around us, transformed by the relationships that we hold. Only our best selves, as others are their best selves caught in that inescapable network of destiny.
Wow, thank you, Paul. And uh, I'm a good example.